Welcome this week to Common Science. And this week we've got Aiden and Edie Emmings. Edie Emmings is another Minnesota native. She grew up in St. Paul and went to Carleton College with myself. We were roomies my senior year of college. And yeah, she's also a science nerd and a tech nerd. So I decided I'd call her up and we'd have a chat. And yeah, Edie, I'd, I'd like to give that bit of an intro, but I'd love to hear more about, about your story. What's your background? What do you enjoy about science and life more generally? Hi, Aiden. Thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, Aiden and I met in college and I studied chemistry in college, um, which surprises a lot of people now because today I'm a software engineer. Um, so I was, I was able to do some research science in ovarian cancer after graduating from college um, and just decided that it wasn't right for me. And so I made the transition into the tech world uh, via an accelerated um, education program and ended up in the position that I'm in now. Yeah, what uh, what initiated that switch? Or, or firstly, well, to back up a bit, why did you study chemistry? What what what? Yeah, I I mean, it? I've always been like a huge science nerd um, ever since I was really young, um, and it was always like when I first started college, it was always like, okay, what am I going to major in? Is it going to be like bio or physics or chemistry? And chemistry was like the last introductory class that I took. And for me, it was just this kind of like aha moment of um, like filling in all the gaps that I felt like I was missing uh, between bio and, and physics and everything. And I always feel like people who like choose a major in the science are kind of going for like the level of um, detail that's like the most satisfying for them and like the questions that they have about the world. Yeah. And for me, like that was like, chemical mechanisms like I just thought that was so cool and it just like explained everything for me dang yeah that's that's super true that you bring up the level of detail so I was a biology major and one of the things about that for me uh that I found frustrating was it, there were more black boxes uh it was more arrow pushing rather than understanding the um more specifics of of like you of the arrow pushing and of the like structures of the atoms and and compounds and all of that. Uh, so that's super fascinating, the, the level of detail. So would you say you're, you're a pretty detail oriented person? How would you describe your personality? <laughs> yeah, sure. Yeah, I would say that, but not, but not like detailed enough to like really get into the like physics level. Sure, sure. <laughs> How else would you describe your personality like and, and how it drew you to chemistry or science? Um, I think I'm pretty curious and I really love learning. Um, yeah, I'm just, I, I always, I'm just like asking questions and, and just trying to understand the world around me and, and how it works. Um, and so I think like having that education really satisfied a lot of those questions for me. Yeah, super, super fair. And then you said, so you, after, so after college, you worked for a bit, and you're working in ovarian research. What was that like? And and what were your, 
experiences in academia and why wasn't it a fit? Yeah, I mean, I, I had, I really liked the people that I worked with and I was really interested in the like project itself, like at a high level, um, like it was really important work and I, I felt passionate about like the application, but I just felt like the, the day-to-day work in the lab was like very repetitive and very tedious and, um, and inefficient in some ways. Like I, I would have, like I had certain experiments that would go for days and I wouldn't know until the very end if like any steps of it had been successful. Right. Um, yeah, and so I think, I think it was just some, and part of that is, is just like my level of experience at the time and like specific things to the lab. Um, but it just, it wasn't something that I, even though I loved like the, the scientific like application of it, um, it wasn't something that I felt passionate enough about to continue on in a higher degree. Cause I sort of felt like all of the careers in science that I was aware of at the time required a PhD. Um, and I didn't know like exactly what I wanted to go into. And I didn't feel like it was worth it to me to dive into like a really intensive educational program to come out and still not know what my like end goal was. Yeah, that that's super, super fair. Um, one thing that just sticks out there is at the end you're, you're saying, um, not knowing exactly what what you want to go forward with. Um, something I've noticed or I've uh, had to kind of wrap my head around is is like rather than thinking about way into the future being uh, asking the question to myself like, oh, what is right for the next year? Um, so you, after your year year at, in the lab you uh decided to take a, a as you like to say early retirement what did that look like or a mini break um, from, a mini break from employment um where you yeah you, you traveled um yeah how was that yeah so i i had a really incredible opportunity uh to live in kenya um with my partner and his brother who lives there full time. And so I, I had known about this opportunity for a while and was able to save up money while I was working in the lab to sustain myself there. Um, and we moved there for six months um, after I left the lab. And so that was, that was a really cool opportunity just to be able to be in a new place and, and kind of explore um and that was what ended up ultimately um exposing me to the world of technology because I got connected with this wildlife organization who I was able to do some website work for so that's kind of the segue into technology or at least the um the beginning of it um yeah, man, just a little little soul searching on a on an adventure out on safari. Um, <laughs> it sounds so cliche, but <laughs> but a little but yeah, I suppose. But sometimes those are needed. I feel like um, what was what was asking yourself the question? Um, okay, I'm gonna take the leap, like, or should I take the leap to travel to Kenya? Like, like 
that I mean it was scary for sure um and it was very it was a long sort of discussion process because it was just very hypothetical for so long um for a while like we were talking about only my partner going um and we were doing long distance at the time so we were even thinking oh like this is the way to like test drive living together <laughs> before we move in which like in hindsight makes no sense because that's like a very very intense experience to live together in a, in a different country um but yeah it was just sort of this gradual process of being like are we doing this like we're talking about it maybe we're gonna do this and then eventually just being like okay <laughs> like we're doing it it's happening um awesome. and so I think kind of feeling like I had concluded my time at the lab um, and that I needed to do some, some just exploring and questioning to kind of figure out the next step. Um, it just felt right, I don't know. Uh, what other kinds of uh, learnings did you uh, acquire about yourself while you were in Kenya? I mean, obviously you started getting interested in technology, what other kinds of questions did you ask yourself and and uh like skills did you learn or passions did you pick up or whatever it might be yeah I think I think something that I think like the biggest learning point for me was um like just being okay with not being productive all the time um when I was working at the lab I felt like even on the off hours, I, I wanted to be working on side projects or um, being like efficient about my time. And I think having that sort of extended unstructured time helped me to just be able to kind of like sit with myself and be like, it's okay to do nothing. Um, and I think that was just really good for my personal growth. Uh, but otherwise, I mean, I did end up finding a lot of things to do. Um, I, I made kombucha. We had like a sourdough starter going for a while. We were making bread. Um, lots of different cooking projects. We ended up doing a lot of running together. Yeah. Um, and some traveling within the country too. So, yeah. Sourdough and kombucha, that sounds uh, right up at Kevin Sally. Well, yeah, and it's, it's kind of funny because so many people during COVID now are finding all of these activities and we're like, we went through all that already. That is super, super funny. Uh, yeah, and then you traveled some too. Uh, you enjoyed camping there or, or other activities? Yeah, um, we did some camping. Um, we did some rock climbing as well. We ended up um, going to a local rock climbing gym there um and yeah that was kind of that was kind of the extent of it some hikes yeah and you got involved with the the a, the kenya wildlife trust or or that's correct right yeah it's the wildlife organization yeah how did that how did that happen while you're in this foreign country locked in a, a house with your significant other okay we weren't locked in the house <laughs> 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 um, but yeah, it was through a friend of, um, of his brothers, her dad is on the board of this organization. Um, and so it was just through connections that I made while I was there. Um, and it's this really cool organization 
that operates just south of Nairobi National Park. And so, um, so Nairobi is the capital of Kenya and it's a huge, huge city. Um, and there's this um, conservation just south of the city that's full of wildlife. And so it's this really um, close quarters of dense human population and wildlife. Um, and the southern border of the conservation is open. So the animals are able to roam um, and they can, they, they just have more space for more biological diversity. And um, there are Maasai folks who live in that area and who own animals who have livestock. And so there are a lot of conflicts between the wildlife and these people because the predators will eat their livestock. And so this organization is partnering with the folks that live there to um, help protect their livestock um, in exchange for them not selling their land to developers essentially. Yeah. So, so the, the, um, the conservancy is, is threatened by the, the city's development and the folks that live just south of the border are willing to like are willing and able to live with the wildlife and so like losing that land would be very detrimental to the to the conservancy dang um well i, I hope i hope things uh go well obviously it's a challenge with uh growing populations and many african countries are growing super rapidly um these days i know or I, I'm just hopeful that some of your uh, your website design uh, went to went to good use and and made some of an impact. What was the what was the learning curve like when you started? So you 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 got to the the foundation or conservancy. It's the Kenya Wildlife Conservancy. Is that what it's called? Um, Kenyan Wildlife. It's the it's the wildlife organization. So. Okay. Yes, that's that's the name of it. Yeah. Oh, okay. Or uh, foundation, the Wildlife Foundation, TWF. Wildlife. Yeah, okay. that's right. That's okay. Right. So you end up there. What were you expecting when you showed up? Were they were they what did they how did you end up doing website stuff when you hadn't done it before? I mean, you're used to pipetting, right? Right. Um yeah, I mean, I guess it was sort of a a collaboration. Um with their admins, yeah, I um, I had I had some exposure to to the organization through this connection that I made, and um, had seen that there was some room for improvement on their website, and so I reached out to them, and it turned out that they were in need of some technical support, and so um, I was like, I can figure this out, <laughs> <laughs> and they were like, great. <laughs> um, and so it was very informal. Um, yeah. But that was kind of the catalyst for me to start really diving into uh, what software engineering is. And so whereas the website stuff itself was was pretty self-explanatory, like I, I could figure it out not being exceptionally technical. Um, it kind of was like the trigger for me to then go to all of these online like learning resources and start to really teach myself 
like the nitty gritty of it. Totally. What do you think it was about you? Um, yeah, like as, as far as it, you kind of taking a, a plunge and saying, oh yeah, I can, I can figure it out. Like, what do you think it was about you that made you feel comfortable and willing to try something like that out? Because I know plenty of people who have said, oh, I'm going to try to code and then they don't, or um, plenty of people who are afraid to quit their job or whatever it is. Like, what, what do you think, um, like, whether it be in your upbringing, like, what, what makes you so willing to dive in? Yeah, that's a great question. I, I think part of it in this scenario was I just, I didn't have much to lose. I, I was already unemployed. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it was also just, I, I was just really excited about the material. And I think that for me, and I knew this about myself when I was working at the lab, that it, it wasn't, it wasn't right because when there's something that I am like really excited about learning and really excited about doing, like this sort of light goes on and it's, I, I just like have this drive that I can't summon artificially in any other way. <laughs> um, and so I think, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, my, I don't know what um, that might stem from in my upbringing, yeah. but yeah. yeah, it's just, it's, geeky excitement really that's awesome i love it because i'm a geek too i'm all about <laughs> i i've been uh diving in myself lately i've been uh so working at the u and and i did a little bit of website design stuff but i'm i'm less on that end and i've been more doing more like data processing and moving numbers around um basically and so it was also a little bit similar where I was like, oh, I don't, I don't really know how to do this, but I can figure it out. And um, I think that's, uh, I mean, it's just important to ask questions and, and, and dive in. Have you experienced, so I, I kind of ha have to ask the question, um, like in, within academia, obviously there's a lot of problems um, for, uh, females in particular, and then also in technology, the technology space, it's uh, most people look like myself, white and male with glasses, usually as well. Um, I'm, I'm curious, how has fitting in been and, and how has like making waves in that regard been for you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's always there. Um, I think it's something that on a day-to-day -day basis, I just have to try and not think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, it's also hard, especially in technology, being new and being the only woman on my team um, because I, I do need other people to explain things to me, you know, and I, I, I do have a lot of room to grow. Um, so it's, it's just kind of like a double whammy of, of imposter syndrome. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, so I just, I just have to, I have to just have to recognize that I have a lot of room to grow in that, but I mean, I, microaggressions do happen. Like that's, that's still very real. Um, 
I think like pretty early on after I was hired, someone asked me if, um, if I thought that I was hired because I was a woman. And it's like, those are the comments that you're like, oh God, like, do I like, you, you start to question like, yeah. Um, and so, yeah, it, it is a challenge. And I mean, like, I'd be remiss not to acknowledge that, like, being a white woman, like, I also have a lot of privilege in this space. Yeah. Um, and there, there are so many different challenges for folks, especially in, in science and technology. Um, so yeah, I've been doing a lot of work in the DNI space at work, which has been really fulfilling because I'm finding other people that um, are willing to have these conversations and for and less really great for less familiar folk DNI. Oh, I'm sorry. Um, diversity and inclusion. Yeah. Um, okay, just double checking. Um, yeah, that's that's awesome, Edie. And I mean, yeah, that's so. There's a group at so you're. I also neglected to mention or or ask you. I, I think that you're a software engineer at uh, Target, and that's a group at, at Target. Then, yeah, or, there there are several different groups at Target, um, and I'm I'm a part of one of them. Yeah. Oh, sweet! And what sorts of initiatives do they uh, like push forward, or like what what what's the point of the group? Yeah, so, so the one that I'm in is kind of more of like a grassroots kind of bottom-up approach. Um, so it's it's folks from all over the, so, so we're, we're talking about just the, te the technology pyramid of Target right now. Um, yeah. So it's folks from throughout uh, software engineering and data sciences and security and all that um, coming together to, to try and um just ask the bigger questions of like how can we make this a more inclusive and more diverse space and so it's so like recent things that we've done have been different um sort of trainings or talks that include like like explaining kind of what microaggressions are um and kind of how to react if you like recognize yourself thinking in a particular way um and just kind of like having those conversations across the the organization and we also will we'll do some a lot of it has to do with language right inclusivity has a lot to do with language at this point and so one of the things that we've been working on too is kind of changing the way we talk about um technology so like, so like, for example, <laughs> there's a lot of sort of aggressive language, I think in technology to describe technical components themselves. Um, but one of the more problematic ones is using the language of slave and master to refer to components. That's <laughs> <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, so, so that's essentially to refer to like maybe one component is the master and it's a technical component that is essentially controlling subcomponents that are referred to as slaves. And so, um, and this is really harmful language. Yeah. 
Um, so some of it is is kind of creating guidelines around how we can can change language and working to even build um, like automated systems to scan our code to look for potentially harmful language and and alert the engineers about it so that we can handle it. Yeah. What, uh, so I'm curious, what alternatives would you use instead of master and slave, for example? So I think like main and secondary I've heard of, um, yeah. a leader and follower. Yeah. It's, um, a lot of it kind of, yeah, <laughs> kind of depends on, yeah. on the application of it. Um, yeah. Um, definitely less uh intense that that's exactly the one that came to mind too when i um just in some of the courses i've taken as well um yeah that's uh uh super cool and and, and sounds like a super great initiative um outside of the so i mean obviously you're you're grinding away as a software engineer by day what does what does ed do by night Oof. <laughs> a lot of different things, I guess. Um, I don't know. Lately, it's been a lot of TV. <laughs> oh, really? But, but oh, I just finished The Crown, <laughs> the Crown, which is a haul. Like, that's a very, that was a very long commitment. Um, but I've also been getting into a lot of like, children's cartoons. Oh, really? Recently. <laughs> yeah. Um, what's the, what's the crown about and would you recommend it? Mm. The crown is, um, like a drama about the history of the, the British Royal family. Yeah. And so if you're, if you're really into like following the British Royal family, I guess you've probably already seen this show. Um, but I knew nothing about them and I thought it was really interesting. Like the show is, is really engaging and um, and I always thought it's really interesting to kind of like Google what actually happened afterwards and look up the pictures of the actual people and everything. Um, so I enjoyed it. It was a good kind of routine to just yeah watch the Crown. Yeah. So you've been watching a lot. But, of, yeah. <laughs> a lot of TV. No, I mean, so you were saying you were making kombucha and bread and all these other things in Kenya. What what happened when you came back? Oh, I still make kombucha. Oh, good. Yeah, good. I still make kombucha. Um, it's not too involved, actually. I only have to. I only have to work on it maybe once every two weeks. If you were to give but the. Been... Oh, sorry, uh, I cut you off. But if you were to give the average listener a quick overview of kombucha making, um, what's the? How much time does it take? Like, how many hmm. things do you need to buy? Yeah, it's, it's, how many things do you need to buy? Well, I just have one jar that holds maybe like 12 to 14 cups. Um, and that's just like my brewing vessel. And so you just have to have a container and then you have to have like a starting culture for it. Um, where does one, once you have that, where do you get you a starting just, culture? The internet you can i mean you can get it on amazon yeah you can get it from someone else who brews kombucha like every time every time i like 
feed it. So you feed it with uh, really sweet tea. And every time I feed it, it, it grows more culture. So I can always give it to someone. To, to get to make more, more nerdy and into the science. Why are you feeding your kombucha? Um, <laughs> it's, a, it's a fermentation process. So there, there are bacteria and yeast in the um in the actual mixture so it, it has like the it has liquid sort of a very acidic liquid um with the bacteria and yeast and then it has a sort of mushroom top layer that kind of insulates it um and the bacteria and yeast feed on the sugar from the tea and i think actually some of the um some of the components of the the black tea itself as well and they reproduce and make bubbles <laughs> and you get your carbonated tea they make um, uh, a little bit of alcohol too isn't there like yes. technically a super small percentage in kombucha yep yeah there is and it's i mean it's kind of impossible to know with your homebrew yeah um but i think it's usually less than a percent okay yeah i'm i'm, I'm taking notes right here because <laughs> I need I need a I need a hobby this COVID. I've been I've been uh yeah, I mean just in in Rochester and I've been uh skiing a good amount and for those of you not in Minnesota, we're we're having a bit of a cold snap. It's been around 0 and negative 5 degrees for the last freaking feels like forever. Um so I have not been outside really for the last couple of days and uh yeah maybe maybe i'll get into brewing kombucha soon um that sounds that sounds super super fascinating and and super super nerdy and and sciencey uh it's good it's tasty yeah you can enjoy the result yeah that's super fair what else are you up to you did you were doing some animation and and illustration tell me more yeah. about that yeah i've been doing some digital illustration which has been really fun um just like on an ipad with like an apple pencil essentially um and i just have like an application that can i can just have different layers like you would in photoshop and it'll animate through them and that's been that's been really fun and really meditative um what's the application you use procreate procreate just uh I'll throw yeah. it in show notes for anybody who's wanting to get into digital uh animation and and illustration sorry that, or is that specifically for illustration it's it's both all the above oh okay sweet yeah, yeah it's great i highly recommend it it's super intuitive to use yeah even even without uh a coding background like yourself oh yeah it's it's not made for for technical folks but okay. it's a beautiful piece of technology i have to say oh sweet sweet yeah, I have a friend who's, uh, it was pretty funny. So the one thing about technology when you, I'm not sure how you feel about it at Target now, um, but I have a friend who's uh, who's super, Nick Morgan, who I think uh, you've, through podcast, through podcasting club, we, uh, we would meet every, every few weeks and we would, we would talk about podcasts and uh, so Edie has met uh, Nick and he uh, was explaining to me how his, his dream is, is to join Adobe. And he was just telling me, he's like, yeah, 
I would love to make the the he was half joking when he said it, but uh, I'd love to make like the airbrush tool like a 0.1% more effective or something. Um, like, obviously, I mean, it sounds small, but when you think about how many people use uh, Adobe, uh, it's a huge impact. Um, I'm curious how you feel about um, that at Target being that it is such a, a big inst institution. Like, do you feel um, sorry, getting back a bit to the technology side of things and the work side of things, like, do you, how do you feel about that kind of tension between working for this massive organization and feeling like you're, you're uh, making an, an, an impact? Yeah, that's definitely um, something I think about. I think the, the technology that I work on has a direct impact on some of the folks that work in our call centers. And so I think for me, when I'm thinking about impact and, and, and kind of like what motivates me in that regard, um, it's about like making their lives easier, about making it, it easier for them to um, do their job and, and track down different cases. Yeah. But I think, um, I mean, I think just just being in the retail space—that's that's always a question, you know—is what is what is what is the impact of what you're doing, like ultimately. Um, and yeah, that's 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 something that I, I I'm still kind of understanding, I think, and dealing with. Yeah, it's uh, it's hard it's hard sometimes. I mean, obviously obviously you are because at at the very least you're helping those call center workers. Um, just have an easier, easier time of things. Um, yeah, that's, uh, that's uh, super interesting to me is just like, yeah, I feel like sometimes when I'm working from my computer and never leaving my house, like how much am I, um, which I'm super fortunate and super blessed to be able to say. Um, but yeah, it, it is kind of just this weird tension between Zoom meetings and like moving stuff around on a computer screen and then feeling like I'm um, contributing. Um, so yeah, I was just curious, yeah, what some of your philosophy was on that. The other thing that I, I think is funny that I'd like to just uh, bring up to is, so you're, you're into drawing and illustrating and yet you're also into technology. I've, ha I've had people say like, oh, he, uh, he wasn't a creative, he went into technology. Um, like the creatives are only in painting and writing and the, the humanities are the fuzzy topics. Um, yeah, I'm curious how you uh, foster your creativity um, and yeah, what you might say to somebody who would say that uh, technology is not a creative process. Yeah, that's a huge misunderstanding. <laughs> um, there's a lot of room for subjectivity in the way that you design software systems. And it has a very real impact on the way that systems work and, um, and on people's lives. And so I work actually does require a lot of creative energy 
um, and we spend a lot of time discussing various design solutions for um, for our systems. So I think I think I think that people say that because it's it's kind of this it's kind of it's kind of hard to understand from an outside perspective because it's so different from what a lot of people do on the day to day, um, and because it's made like we have all of this software that's available to us on our phones and computers and all of the like processing has been completely abstracted for us. Mm -hmm. um, but I think that, um, that yeah, it's, that's, that's a big misunderstanding. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. I, I totally agree. What, what are some of the, like, I guess, so you said it's a subjective process. Um, what are some of the problems with that? And um, yeah, some of the, yeah, like issues in the, in the broader field of technology that you've noticed. Um, and uh, yeah, I'm, I'm just curious what your kind of take on that is as well. Um, on the subjectivity of it? Yeah, like you, you said that, uh, I mean, just computer systems require a lot of subjectivity, which involves creativity too. Um, but then you're also super passionate about, uh, to tie it back to the diversity and inclusion um, mm -hmm. piece. I'm curious what kinds of issues that you've been exposed to uh, and from your viewpoint as a software engineer, like what kinds of, of problems um, maybe on a broader scale uh, you've observed? That's a great question. Um, I think that that, yeah, I think that tying back to kind of like the misperception of subjectivity and technology, I think there's also um, the idea that like people take technology for like truth, especially when it comes to like machine learning. Um, and it's so important to remember that there's always a person behind the system. There's always people behind the system um, and that systems are not perfect. And that human bias is reflected in those systems. Um, I'm, I'm sure you could have an entire podcast episode dedicated to bias in, in um, machine learning and yeah. technology. But yeah, that's a very, I mean, that's a very hot topic in the field and a very, it's very real. Yeah. Are there any like proposed solutions that either you have or um, you've uh, come across for those kinds of biases? Um, I, yeah, I'm, I don't, I don't know. It's kind of a million dollar question, I feel. Yeah. <laughs> um, there's a lot of, there's a lot of work in um, finding the right data sets to train certain models that are unbiased, that are inclusive, um, but it's really hard to do. And it's, it's a bit out of my area of expertise. So <laughs> kind of yeah. hard for me to speak to. Um, yeah, that's super fair. Uh, to our listeners, it's, so it's also, I, I'm not able to deploy machine learning models, but the, the biases that 
I believe Edie is referring to is when you're training these models, you'll take a, a data set uh, and then you feed it into the machine learning black box. Um, at least it's a black box in my mind and it'll uh, map uh, like one instance to an outcome. So it'll say, oh, this, this photo of a kidney um, means this, there's this disease. Um, so we'll take a whole bunch of photos of this kidney, feed it into this machine learning algorithm, and it can say like, there's this, this disease is this percent likely. Um, so that's like, I guess my super basic overview of it. And uh, what you're saying about the biases and the data sets uh, with that idea, I know at least historically uh, in clinical trials, men have been, uh, like white men have been these subjects. Uh, so that's like another, I mean, bias even beyond machine learning is, is at least in the medical field um, where women uh, and minority groups have not been studied in these clinical trials. So what's listed as a side effect might be just, uh, just like the, the fact that a, a woman wasn't in, in the clinical trial or um, a certain minority group wasn't. So uh, yeah, it's definitely a real problem. And you're so right. We could have a whole other podcast on it because I'm my brain is just I firing. Um, I keep thinking of examples now too. <laughs> yeah, it, give give one more, and then and then maybe we'll uh, start wrapping it up for for this week's cast. Well, one, one that I really like to come to to show just like how dependent these models are on the data is like the old saying that your parents would tell you to try and avoid peer pressure where, oh, if all your friends jumped off a bridge, would you do it? And if you're a machine learning model, then and all of your friends jumped off the bridge, then you would do that 100% of the time. And so if you feed it biased data, it's going to produce biased results. Yeah, that is one hell of an analogy. <laughs> man um, we can't we can't end on that note um uh, before before we end on that note uh how how let's get a little bit out of the technology issues with it and um jump back to uh the outside of outside of work um where do you find science in and and joy in your day-to-day -day life um, outside of some of the things that we've discussed? Like, what are your plans for the weekend? Ooh. I'll start with, I'll start with the science. Yeah. Um, I think, I mean, I, I still think about chemistry all the time. Um, like when, when I'm cooking, when I'm washing dis dishes, I'm thinking about like solubility. Um, and I think that some people can empathize with this too, going through COVID and just imagining particles of virus flying through the air. Like I'm, I'm, I'm sure other people are picturing that. And that's how I feel about so many things. Um, and I'm really grateful for that background. Yeah. Um, how about- as for the joy yeah yeah <laughs> um yeah that shouldn't be hard but I feel like it is um I think 
lately I've I've really found joy in just getting outside of the walls of my apartment. Um, that's been a challenge with the weather, as you already mentioned. But I was going, I was running pretty regularly before the weather got so cold. Um, and going for walks with friends, social distance walks. That's that's really been a huge source of of joy for me recently is just getting my body moving and getting fresh air. Yeah, that's uh, super fair. I need to take a page out of that book. Um, yeah, the last two days, I have not been going on my usual walks or doing my yoga. So I've been just a couch potato and I feel horrible. So yeah. I need to hop back on the, the yoga <laughs> and, and walk train. Um, Retired athlete life. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, oh man, we didn't even talk about soccer. But anyways, uh, yeah, Edie Emmings is an awesome individual and a good friend. And yeah, I hope you found value in this podcast and continue to ask questions and learn about the world. Uh, you can uh, follow us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, all the podcast apps. Um, you can also support us on Patreon. Uh, and yeah, that's a wrap and we hope to see you next week.